Good morning, my name is Bryce Hales. I'm the pastor here at Resurrection OC. And uh, if you have a Bible, I would love to invite you to turn with me to Genesis chapter 38. And if you're following along on one of the church Bibles that we have scattered around, uh, you can find Genesis 38 on page 32. Well, it's Advent, like I said, and uh, it's, in my opinion, I mean, Advent to me is one of the best seasons of the year. It's the best time to be at church as we, um, as we sing, you know, these, these Christmas songs that we all know, uh, but just the whole season, I love, I love it. It's um, all around, we see people getting ready for Christmas. I went for a walk around our neighborhood uh, just last night, and you could see looking in the windows in a totally non-creepy sort of way, everybody decorating their Christmas trees and hanging up lights and getting out the Christmas decorations. It's a time of preparation. Uh, we got the Christmas tree, you know, up. We're already starting our Christmas shopping. And somehow, I think instinctively as a culture, we know, we have the sense that we have to prepare for Christmas. We can't just kind of fall into it the day of. It takes time to prepare. And that's what the season of Advent is all about. Advent is a word that means coming or arrival. It comes from this Latin word, but it's a, it's a season that uh, for hundreds of years the church has uh, celebrated. It's not, it's not in the Bible. It's not something we have to do, but we, we can. Uh, we, are, we are free to observe this season of Advent, this season of preparation. It's a time of, of waiting, really. Uh, but not a time of waiting, just like a passive waiting around for something to happen. Like when you're sitting in the waiting room at the hospital and you're bored and you're wondering when is this thing ever going to happen and pulling out our phones to check Facebook. Um, it's more of an active waiting. It's like, um, it's waiting like you would wait if you were getting ready to run a marathon. You know, you're waiting for the day of the race and yet there's a lot of preparation that goes into, uh, you know, waiting for that day. To arrive, It's an acknowledgement that something so significant is happening at Christmas that we might miss out on it if we didn't take the time to prepare. And so Christians historically have used the four Sundays leading up to Christmas as a time of focused preparation. And the New Testament, I think, hints at this uh, because the New Testament doesn't start by talking just about the birth of Jesus. But the New Testament in the book of Matthew opens, not with the account of Jesus' birth, but with the background, the context, the backstory, uh, to help prepare us for the birth of Jesus. And so um, Matthew 1, it starts off with the genealogy, the lineage, the heritage of Jesus. And uh, it talks, starts off talking about Abraham, who was really the father of the faith. God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you into a people. And and so Matthew 1 says, Abraham was the father of Isaac, and Isaac was the father of Jacob, and Jacob was the father of Judah and his brothers, and Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah by Tamar, and Perez was the father of Hezron, and so on and so on, down to Jesus. And one of the things that you notice if you read that genealogy is that there are these names that, uh, that stand out. And I think of the, uh, that genealogy as a little bit like the Christmas cards that we're all kind of sending this time of year. Uh, I just have to give a head or like a, I don't know, hat tip to the Peters family it was the first Christmas card to arrive in the mail at our house, at least uh, 
at least this year. But, um, you know, we send these Christmas cards, and the Christmas card is often like a year in review. Here's what happened in the life of our family this year. And typically, we highlight the good things, right? Maybe there's like some acknowledgement of, well, there were some rocky moments, but everything worked out okay. But, you know, but we talk about things like uh, new kids, new jobs, new moves, um, vacations we took. We've all got the... Uh, the nice pictures at the beach and matching outfits and um, it's this time when we're looking at uh, you know what, what are the significant good things that happened in our in our year but when we look at this Christmas card the beginning of Matthew there's this huge difference because God doesn't whitewash over the um, the awkward moments in the lineage of Jesus. He doesn't uh, just skip over. He, uh, he actually seems to go out of his way to highlight um, there, are, there are a number of people in this, uh, in this background, this lineage of Jesus with sort of checkered pasts. Uh, and there are a number of people that you just wouldn't include in a, in a uh, genealogy. And in particular, there are five women mentioned uh, in this genealogy. And um, that's significant because, I mean, even on our day, uh, you tend to pa- kind of chart the lineage of generation to generation through the male line, but especially in, um, in traditional cultures, that would have been the way that they would have done it, tracing the, the lineage through the male descendants. And so these five women stick out, but if we dig a little bit deeper, we find that each of their stories uh, is remarkable. And unique, and it's really um, significant that God includes each of these five women as He tells the story, the kind of preparing the way for Jesus, the narrative of the birth of Jesus. And so, over the next four Sundays, we're going to look at four of these women. And today, I want to look at the first Tamar, and uh, Tamar and the hope of justice. And I'm going to warn you that uh, before we read this passage in, um, in Genesis 38, that this is really like a PG-13 introduction to the Christmas season. Uh, I'm not going to read all of this passage. Um, Jason and I were talking about it this week, and I was asking Jason, hey, what happens again in, the, in that story? And Jason looked at it, and he wouldn't actually say the words that are in the, in the passage. I mean, I'm not going to read like the most... Um, <coughs> If you don't know what I'm talking about, now you have something to do this afternoon, right? Um, wow, what made Jason blush? But uh, if you would, stand with me as we read um, Genesis 38, starting in verse 10. So this is the story of Judah. God appeared to Abraham and said, I'm going to make you a great nation. And Abraham had a son named Isaac, and Isaac had a son named Jacob. And Jacob had 12 boys, one of whom was Judah. And it says uh, in verse 10, and what he did was wicked, uh, verse 11 actually, then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, okay, one more sentence of explanation. <laughs> so Judah had a, um, had a son named Onan, uh, sorry, had, had a first son named Er, and Er was wicked, and so God killed him, that's what it says, and then uh, his, uh, his wife got married to his next son, Gosh, I'm totally mangling this. Let me just read it and then we'll catch up later. It's okay. Okay. Verse 11. Then Judah said to Tamar, his daughter-in-law, Remain a widow in your father's house till Shelah, my son, grows up. For he feared that he would die like his brothers. So Tamar went and remained in her father's house. In course of time, the wife of Judah, Shua's daughter, died. 
when Judah was comforted, he went up to Timnah to his sheep shears, he and his friend Hira, the Adullamite. And when Tamar was told, your father-in-law is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep, she took off her widow's garments and covered herself with a veil, wrapping herself up, and sat at the entrance of Enan, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that Shelah was grown up, and she had not been given to him in marriage. When Judah saw her, he thought she was a prostitute, for she had covered her face. He turned to her at the roadside and said, Come, let me come in to you, for he did not know that she was his daughter-in-law. She said, What will you give to me that you may come in to me? And he answered, I will send you a goat from the flock. And she said, If you give me a pledge until you send it. He said, What pledge shall I give you? And she replied, Your signet and your cord and your staff that is in your hand. So he gave them to her and went in to her, and she conceived by him. Then she arose and went away, and taking off her veil, she put on the garments of her widowhood. Skip down to verse 24. About three months later, Judah was told, Tamar, your daughter-in-law, has been immoral. Moreover, she is pregnant by immorality. And Judah said, Bring her out and let her be burned. As she was being brought out, she sent word to her father-in-law, By the man to whom these belong, I am pregnant. And she said, Please identify whose they are, the signet and the cord and the staff. Then Judah identified them and said, She is more righteous than I, since I did not give her to my son, Shelah. And he did not know her again. When the time of her labor came, there were twins in her womb. And when she was in labor, one put out a hand. And the midwife took and tied a scarlet thread on his hand, saying, This one came out first. But as he drew back his hand, behold, his brother came out. And she said, What a breach you have made for yourself. Therefore, his name was called Perez, which means breach. Afterward, his brother came out with a scarlet thread on his hand, and his name was called Zerah. This is God's word. Will you pray with me? God, would you uh, speak to us now through your ancient word, and we have to confess this is just a really strange passage. And so would you give us ears to hear what your spirit is saying to your people, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated, please. Well, nothing really says Merry Christmas quite like a story of deceit and deception and sexual entrapment and incest and everything else that we find in this passage. Um, What in the world does this have to do with Christmas? Uh, Much less, how does this help us prepare for Christmas? Well, what I hope uh, to do in this time together um, is really two things. I hope that we will um, take away from this just the reality of why we need a Savior. Why did Jesus even need to come? Why do we need a Savior? And then I hope also that uh, we will see that the very inclusion of Tamar in the lineage of Jesus, that God doesn't just skip over this detail like most of us would if this was in our history, that it gives us hope that grace can break through even into our lives. And so I just want to uh, look at the story from the perspective of each of the main characters. Um, what do we, how does the, the account, the perspective of Tamar help us prepare for Christmas, but how does the account of Judah and his perspective in the story, how does that help us prepare for Christmas? Um, Okay, so first, 
Tamar. So I think we have to admit, just getting into this, that this is like one of the weirder stories that you will read in the Bible. Um, this is very strange, and it's, it's, it's especially unfamiliar to us. What in the world is going on here? Well, um, this is the part I got tripped up over. Okay, so uh, Judah has three sons, and uh, Judah's first son is named Ur, and uh, he marries Tamar. And we don't know why, but it says in the first part of Genesis 38, it says he was evil and God killed him. We don't, we don't know why, but apparently he was a wicked man. And so um, he dies and Tamar is a widow. And so Ur's younger brother, uh, Onan, marries Tamar. And uh, Onan, in a similar way, is evil and God kills him. And then there's a third son. And Tamar should uh, go to this third son, Shelah. Um, but Judah comes and says, you know, this woman is bad news. She is like a black widow. And if she's got two for two so far, and if I give my only boy to her, only remaining boy, I'm going to be without an heir. And, um, and, but the good news for Judah was that Sheila was still a, a boy. And so uh, they're probably all teenagers. I mean, people got very, married very young at, the, at this point. And uh, so Judah says, go back to your father, go back to your family of origin, don't call us, we will call you when Shelah is of age. And um, Shelah grows up, several years pass, but it's clear in this passage that Judah has no intention of keeping his word. And so Tamar sets this trap for Judah, and he falls right into it, and they sleep together. Uh, daughter-in-law and father-in-law. <laughs> now, if that doesn't sound to you like an episode of the Jerry Springer show, I don't know what does. What in the world is going on here? Well, I know this is going to sound totally weird, but this whole um, situation, this passage is describing, is actually an arrangement that um, was codified in the Old Testament as a way to make sure that justice was done for widows. Uh, throughout the Bible, um, the Bible makes a big deal that God is on the, on the side of the vulnerable, that God is on the side of the poor and the widow and the orphan. And um, the background of this um, whole incident is a, a law in the Old Testament called leveret marriage that was enacted and enshrined in the Old Testament to provide justice for widows. Um, so Tamar is young. She's maybe 13, 15 years old. And uh, she's got her whole life ahead of her. She's been widowed twice. Uh, she has no children. She has no opportunity to go out and get a job. She has no one to care for her. And she is left with really no options to provide for herself. And so the Old Testament had this practice called leveret marriage, which is weird to us. It's been practiced by many cultures throughout the world. And in leveret marriage, uh, it, it, leveret marriage is the practice where a widow would marry her deceased brother's husband. Okay? So if a woman was married and her husband passed away, she was a widow and she did not have an heir, she would then go to the next brother and down the line until she had an heir who could provide for her. Now, I know that all of the women in the room are kind of sizing up their brother-in-laws right now. <laughs> and the men are thinking about their own brothers, right? Come back, because I know this is super weird. 
Um, but here's what you have to see to understand what's going on. Um, Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, pointed this out. And this is just so insightful. That every culture, every society has um, certain things without which it's really impossible to succeed or thrive or live a happy life in that culture. Um, and it's different for every culture, and yet every culture has these things. So for us, uh, it's probably, it's not family, it's probably education. Uh, it would be very, very difficult in our culture, in the day and time that we live in, to really live a life where you can flourish and thrive and success, uh, you know, be, live a successful life, provide for your family, if you are functionally illiterate. Right? If you don't know how to do basic math, if you, I mean, honestly, like if you don't know how to use a computer, it's going to be very hard. If you don't have any education, you're going to have a very difficult time living in the 21st century, at least in the United States and most of the Western world, right? On the other hand, family, uh, you can survive without being married, without having children. Uh, it's, it's quite possible to do that. And while we all need relationships in general, um, it's, it's quite possible to live a happy, successful life without being married, without having children, right? In the ancient world, it's exactly the opposite. I mean, these people are semi-nomadic. Uh, it's an agrarian society. What good is an education to you in that culture? Like, you don't need an education. It's practically worthless. And yet, it's very, very hard to live without family. It would be very difficult to live if you didn't live close to your family, if you didn't have, especially if you're a woman, if you're not married, or if you don't have a son who can provide for you. And so um, this law, this law of leveret marriage was enacted and kind of enshrined in the Bible. The Bible is very clear on this, that as a matter of justice, God says, my people will provide for the vulnerable. Those that are on the margins of society, the widows, the orphans, the sojourners, the aliens, those without access to the things that you need to live a meaningful life. And what I want you to see is, and this is really important, the Bible uses the word justice to describe this. Um, the Bible does not use the word charity to, to describe caring for those who are vulnerable. It uses the word justice. Now, what's the difference? Well, charity tends to be the sort of thing where we say, well, after I have taken care of my primary needs, and after I've done everything that I want to do, if there's any you know, money left at the end of the month, well, then I may be generous with that. That's what charity, and the Bible says, no, no, it's, it's justice. It is your primary, it is our duty. Justice is our duty. Okay, so that's the Old Testament, but what does that have to do with us? Um, what does that have to do with us in 2017 as we prepare to celebrate Christmas? Well, first, let me ask you this. I mean, is, is the, um, the duty to do justice, is that on your radar as you think about how you are going to celebrate Christmas this year? I mean, as you think about all the preparations that you are making and all of the, um, you know, the gifts you're going to buy and the parties you're going to attend and the lights and all of this great stuff, that is, um, do, we, do we think that as Christians, part of the way that we celebrate Christmas is by working for justice on behalf of those who don't have access to the things that we think that we are entitled to? Okay, the Bible says... To whom much has been given, much shall be required. If you believe you are entitled to something, then you have the duty to provide it for those who don't have access to it. 
That's not charity, that's justice, according to the Bible. Uh, this is why, I mean, people asked me, um, why are you doing a gift drive to benefit teen moms? It's about justice. It's about justice. This is why we're doing this Christmas offering that we just talked about on the video. Um, we want to continue to provide a home for people who are lost and disconnected from God and other people here. We want to have the resources to be able to serve people outside the walls of our church who are never going to darken the door of our church. It's our obligation. It's our duty. It's our privilege, certainly, but it is about justice. It's not about doing whatever we want, and if there's anything left over at the end of the day, well, then maybe we'll be generous. No, that's, that's not how the Bible talks about it. Um, let me just put it bluntly. I mean, this, I think that the question this begs is this. Um, how much money are we preparing to spend on ourselves or on our kids versus how much are we preparing to give away this Christmas? Uh, let me just speak for myself. I have, I've, I've spent months financially preparing for Christmas. Um, getting ready, knowing that this is the most expensive month of the year for most of our families, for, you know, parents. I mean, I've spent months setting money aside so that we can be ready for Christmas. Have I spent any time at all thinking about what my strategy to be generous this Christmas is going to be? In the story of Tamar, we see that God's people um, prepare to celebrate the birth of Jesus by being committed to justice, not to charity, to justice. That's the first thing I think that we see in the story of Tamar, the perspective of Tamar. But the second thing, the other implication is, is this, that when you look at our world and you see the news and you hear of injustice um, and you are unsettled or you are troubled or you are angered, I mean, what do you, what do, you do with that? Uh, when you look at the world and you say, man, this is, this is not right. What do you do with that? I mean, let me just be really blunt about everything. Like, we all know what's going on in the news, right? Where, I don't know, six weeks ago, prominent Hollywood mogul, you know, it comes to light that um, he's used his position, his power, his influence to, um, well, I don't know if abuse is too strong of a word, um, sexually intimidate women. Um, and that has just opened the floodgates, and it's like every day, who is it today, right? Um, what do you do with that? On the surface, um, I mean, I've seen this happen. Um, when somebody whose ideology does not line up with mine, we see people almost sort of gloat over the downfall of others. So let me just be bluntly clear about where we are as a culture right now. Okay, we have a president who is on record doing this sort of thing, who's owned strip clubs his entire life, right? A conservative. We have kind of secular, liberal Hollywood now every day outed. And then we have in you know, recent memory, but it's still happening in the church, the same thing, right? The clergy sex abuse scandal, primarily in the Roman Catholic Church, but it's not just the Roman Catholic Church, right? Um, what are you gonna What are you gonna do with that? Um, my fear, honestly, is um, 
is that we as a culture just kind of crumble under the weight of all of that and we just descend into cynicism and we say, well, that's just the way the world is, I guess. Left, right, church is all embroiled in the same power struggle where, you know, injustice has been the norm and we don't plead the case of the victims and we sweep it under the rug and we hope nobody calls us on it. And it's all blown up and it's all come to light now. What are you gonna do with that? Are you just gonna say, well, I guess that's just the way, I'm, just, I'm gonna protect my kids as best I can. You're just gonna crumble under the weight of the cynicism or are you gonna call out to God for justice and say, God, this is such a stinking mess. And if you don't show up, if you don't break into the world, what hope do we have? This world is a really dark and dirty place. Will you draw near to us? Will you come? We can't fix it. Will you break in to our darkness, God? Where's our hope? In Tamar, we see that we need justice. We need a Savior. We need a God who will break in to our world. But what about Judah? Uh, How does Judah help us prepare for Christmas? What we see... Um, Judah is really on the road to evil and picking up, uh, you know, picking up speed. And um, we, he can't see himself. If we come back to the story, we come back to the narrative, we see that Judah has promised Tamar that when Shelah, the third son, is of age, that, that she will be married to him. And yet Tamar knows what's happening and she sees that Shelah has grown up and and uh, nobody's calling her, and she devises this plan to um, take matters into her own hands. And so, um, you know, the writing is on the wall, and she makes this plan, and she hears that Judah is going up to Timnah to shear his sheep. Now, that doesn't seem to us like a very significant detail, but probably the, the commentators say what's happening is it's harvest time, and it's the time of the year when... Um, you know, there's going to be this festival, there's going to be this harvest feast, and I heard somebody compare it to, this is like Mardi Gras, okay, and um, Judah's wife has just passed away, and the time for mourning is done, and he is going to Mardi Gras, and man, he is getting ready to party, and Tamar sees what's happening to him, what he's doing, and what is not happening for her, and so she dresses like a prostitute, and she waits on the side of the road, and she waits for Judah and she apparently knows what kind of guy he is, and he falls for the trap. He's going up to the festival, and he, uh, he avails himself of her services, and she says, but what are you gonna pay me? And he doesn't have anything on him, and so he leaves a pledge. And he leaves his signet and his cord and his staff, and you know, it'd be like leaving your, your wallet there. It's got your ID, and it's got your credit cards in it. And uh, the part we skipped over, it, it does say that um, that Judah had a friend bring a goat back, so he does try to make good on the pledge, but um, the friend doesn't find Tamar there because she's put her widow's clothes back on, and, um, and he can't find her. And then three months later, Tamar is pregnant. Well, she's pregnant right away, obviously, but three months later, it's obvious, it's showing, and Judah hears about this, and he is outraged. I mean, he's got to be happy secretly, right? But he is outraged. How could this daughter-in-law of mine 
uh, be immoral? How could she be found to be pregnant? And uh, he is furious. And it's, it, which the translation's a little bit different, but in the original Hebrew, his response when he hears is just two words. He says, take, burn. And uh, I mean, that's pretty... Uh, you know, give, it, it, it's just insane on so many levels, right? But what we see in his response is one that he doesn't see himself at all. But secondly, that he blames Tamar for the death of his first two sons. Um, this is over-the-top punishment. Over-the-top. He is furious at her for having sex outside of marriage, and yet he is totally oblivious to the fact that obviously, like, he was involved in this situation. Um, but more than that, he's raised, I mean, he's totally oblivious. He's totally, he can't see himself. He can't see his own sin. He can't see that he's raised these boys that are wicked. And there's all kinds of just dysfunction in his family that he won't own. And he points the finger at Tamar. He's critical of others while being easy on himself. And as Tamar is kind of being dragged out to be burned, she says, I see if you recognize these. (laughs) And what she's doing is she's exposing Judah. Um, She's not just exposing, obviously, like, see, I have your possessions here. She's saying, see if you recognize yourself. She's exposing his hypocrisy. She's exposing the sexual double standard. Judah's blind. Judah's blind. Uh, Parents are often blind to the sins of our children, aren't we? A couple of uh, weeks ago, I was meeting with a couple of local principals uh, here in Ladera Ranch, and I was asking them, what's it like to be a principal in Ladera Ranch? And they said, um, one of the stories they said is, you wouldn't believe what happens you know, when, uh, when we have to discipline a child. And we have to call home and ahead of time and say, this is what your son did, this is what your daughter did, and this is the punishment. And, and they said often, often the response from the parent is, well, when he gets home, then I will hear the real story, right? Just blindness, blindness. I mean, those of you that are teachers or work with kids know what this is like, right? Um, parents are often blind. Judah's blind. He's blind to the sins of his children. He's blind to his own sin. He can't see. Again, nothing says Merry Christmas. <laughs> like this trail of sexual entrapment, of incest, of prostitution. But this story reminds us that we live in a desperate world. We live in a world that is desperate for a God who will break in and shine the light because we cannot see ourselves. We don't want to see ourselves. We desperately need God because we can't see ourselves. We won't see ourselves. We will, we will do anything within our power to avoid looking at who we really are. And so Tamar says just one word. Again, in in the uh, translation, it's like, would you perhaps like to investigate? It sounds like a line out of Downton Abbey. Like, would you inquire whether these, you recognize these items? But in, in, uh, in Hebrew, she just says one word, uh, hakernah, recognize. She holds these things up and says, recognize, recognize. Would you recognize yourself? Would you look at yourself? Do you recognize your hypocrisy? Do you recognize that you are holding me to a standard that you don't even pretend to uphold yourself? Could you see yourself? And Judah is confronted with this and he says, she is more righteous than I. 
And it's interesting the way that the Bible puts it there because it doesn't say she is righteous. Um, I mean, let's just be clear that like <laughs> the Bible is in no place going to endorse, well, if you have a problem, enact a plan of sexual entrapment, right? Like, no. But, um, but Judas says, not she is righteous, but she is more righteous than I. She's more righteous than I. God breaks in, and Judah actually recognizes himself. He sees himself as he is. And we don't have time to talk about it, but I mean, this, this whole, if we were to continue reading the narrative in Genesis, we would see that this actually, this isn't just a one-off thing for Judah where he just tries to get himself off the hook, but actually his life changes here. He sees himself and he repents. He recognizes what he's done. God breaks in because, I mean, this is almost an aside, but like, think about the grace of God in, in breaking in before he kills his daughter-in-law. What happens if he crosses that bridge? You know, there are some events in life where if you, you know, if you go there, you are either going to live the rest of your life in denial, trying to justify that event, or you are going to somehow come to terms with it and everything you do will be overshadowed by it. And God in his grace breaks in and shows up and allows him to see himself. What about you? Can you recognize yourself? Can you see yourself? It's a funny question to ask, isn't it? Because uh, I had a friend who I heard once say it like this. If you were deceived, would you know it? I mean, if you couldn't see yourself, would you know that you couldn't see yourself? Well, no, like you can't see, right? You don't know what you don't know. So how do you know if you see yourself as you really are? Well, there's one thing I think that this passage leads us to believe, and it's this, that when we are blind, we are critical of others and easy on ourselves. But when we can see ourselves, then we can begin to look at people that we used to despise, that we used to look down on, that we used to think we were better than, and say, no, she is, he is, they are more righteous than I. When grace breaks in, you begin to see yourself and you begin to soften towards those that you disagree with. I saw um, a beautiful thing on Facebook this week. I know that's, that's newsworthy, right? Um, the other day, somebody said this. Somebody shared a, uh, an article and said this, most know me Most know me as someone who has at times espoused strident political partisanship, partisanship on Facebook over the years. The 26 campaign combined with my return to regularly going to church helped me see finally what this article talks about. I have found it liberating to not allow politics over my faith to inform my identity and consequently my prejudices. Isn't that beautiful? When grace breaks in, he didn't say I changed my view on everything. He said I can look at people that I used to disagree with and look down on. I don't have to wear my political ideology as a badge of my righteousness. When grace breaks in, when God shows up, we can see ourselves as we are. But most of us don't want to see ourselves as we really are, do we? Why don't we want to see ourselves? Well, like we know what's there, right? 
like I don't want to see the I don't want to see like I, I have some sense I just don't want to look at it I, like I don't keep it out of my periphery I don't want to see I know what's there but it's gross I don't want to look at it but when grace shows up Christmas is about the God who breaks into our lives to forgive us and therefore we can actually when we know God is not going to hold us guilty he is going to declare that we are righteous even though we know that we are guilty then we can actually look and we can see ourselves as we truly are Christmas is about learning to see ourselves it's about God breaking into our world and allowing us to see the people walking in darkness have seen a great light like Castillo's read earlier Christmas is about the lights being turned on and being able to see ourselves. And we get a hint of that in this passage because when Tamar, she conceives and she has twins, and um, you know, we read the details, but the, the first one, uh, the, the, you know, the midwife says he broke through uh, and she names him uh, Perez. And Perez means breach. And what does breach mean? It, it, means a, it means something that's broken through. And it's this hint and what we're going to see kind of fulfilled in Matthew chapter 1. Why in the world would you leave, like, have this Jinger, Jerry Springer situation? Like, if this was in your genealogy, would you tell anybody? And God says, when I'm sending my son to earth, I'm going to highlight in neon flashing letters just this incest, entrapment, awful, abusive Situation because I'm redeeming it. And we see this hint through the, the name that Tamar gives to her son. Breach. Something has broken through. Christmas is about the God who breaks into our world. It's about the God who breaks into our world. I have a friend who's a pastor in another part of the country. I was talking with him a couple weeks ago. He see, this is what he's doing this morning. He said he was going to read the last chapter of the book of Malachi, which is the last book of the, New Te- of the Old Testament. Okay, He's going to read the last chapter of Malachi, and then he says, and then I'm just going to not say anything for as long as I can possibly stand it. I'm not going to try to reenact that for you this morning. But he says, I'm going to see if I can stand there for like, I don't know, a minute, two minutes, three minutes. And just like, what, what's going to happen? Like, how long will people let me just stand there in silence? And he said, the point is that the book of Malachi ends and God is silent for 400 years. 400 years. There is no, God, where are you? Do you hear us? Do you see us? Are you paying attention? Will you please show up? And Christmas is about the God who breaks through, who speaks into the darkness, who speaks into the silence. Christmas is about the God who breaks into our world to work for injustice. Christmas is about the God who breaks into our world to declare the guilty, like Judah, like Tamar, and like us, righteous. He declares the guilty righteous. Christmas is about the God who breaks into our world to help us see ourselves as we really are. To help us see ourselves as we are because he has taken the guilt upon himself. So how does this story help us prepare for Christmas? Well, it shows us that we prepare for Christmas by living with hope. Hope in the Bible is not optimism. Living with hope doesn't mean somehow convincing yourself to be like a glass is half full kind of a person. 
that may be you, but it may not be you. Hope in the Bible is living now in the present in light of what is certain in the future. Imagine uh, two people. Two people are given the same job. It's tedious. It's monotonous. It's in a factory. They're doing the same thing over and over every day. It's repetitive. It's boring. And one person, the first person is told at the end of the year, first year of doing this job, you will be paid $10,000. The other person is told you're going to do the same job. And at the end of this year, you're going to be paid $10 million. Do you think that those two people would experience the job in the same way? And the first person who's getting $10,000 would be like, this is, I hate this. This is the worst job in the world. They're distracting themselves. They're doing everything they can just to get through it every day. The person who's going to make $10 million says, you know, I'm actually finding a lot of, there's a lot of value in repetitively, you know, it's a discipline to like, but I've got to look for the, this is real, I'm really thankful for this opportunity, right? Same exact situation. One person hates it. The other person is working with hope. That's what it looks like for Christians to live in light of Christmas, this Advent. We live now in the brokenness of our world because we know that Christmas is coming. And so as we enter Advent this season, I want to encourage you to live today, this month, this week with hope that Christmas is really coming. I want to encourage you to look at the world that you live in and open your eyes to the real injustice that you see. You don't have to pretend like it's not there. God sees it. I want to encourage you to call injustice what it is without giving in to cynicism. As you prepare for Christmas, I want to encourage you to be intentional about the way that you spend your time and your money. This is not about charity. It's not about doing whatever we want, and if there's anything left over, that will be generous. I'm not calling for like austerity, presence, parties, Light, it's great. It's all great stuff. It's all great stuff. But we cannot claim to be on the side of justice if charity only comes from our leftovers. This passage shows us that some of us are Judas and some of us are Tamar. Some of us have been horribly hurt. We've been horribly sinned against. And for some of us, there's this thing in our past where we think, you know, how could God ever accept me if he knew what I've done or if he knew what has been done to me? And what I want you to see is this woman is the great, 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 whatever, grandmother of Jesus. God sees you. God loves you. God wants to heal you. But some of us are like Judas, and we're blind to who we really are. And I want to invite you to recognize yourself. This last uh, week, there was some food that went missing in our house. And uh, we sat all the kids down and we're like, who, like literally ate the cookie from the cookie jar. (laughs) And um, amazingly, none of them did it, you know. And I'm like, okay, we counted. Yeah, somebody did it. Okay, there's definitely cookie missing. And I'm so just in desperation. I go and I sit all the kids down and I look at them. I'm like, I'm about to tell you something and you have five seconds to respond and then the deal goes away. Okay? If you tell me right now I won't punish you. One, two, three, four. And somebody goes, but will we get in trouble? <laughs> like, we have a winner, right? 
you can see yourself. You can be honest about who you really are. Because Christmas means that God has come not to hold you accountable for your sin, but to take your sin upon himself. And that's why we can live with hope. We pray with me. Father, we thank you that uh, you don't bore us with tame, benign stories of what, uh, you know, stories of heroes that we should be like, but that you give us in this weird passage an incredible message of good news. God, would you help us to see ourselves and our world as it truly is? Would you help us to be people who live uh, for justice, who don't have to defend ourselves because you have come to be our defender? Would you help us live this Christmas with hope as we place our trust in Jesus? We pray in his name. Amen.